All right, so let's, um, I know we've been praying, but I want to I wanna pray this morning, um, asking the Lord that you would speak to us by your spirit. Lord, I want to just thank you for what you have already spoken to us today. We don't want to continue just to ask for the same things over and over again, realizing, God, that you hear our prayers, you know our needs, and your desire when we gather is to speak to your people and to your church. And so we thank you for the ways that you have spoken to us already as we've worshiped you in song. And now, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would embed within our hearts truth as we worship you in the word of God. Lord, would you conform us, oh God, today. Lord, we need to be transformed in our innermost being. We need to be conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image that is Christ-like, that you have designed for us within this new creation life. God, let us not leave today thinking the same way, desiring the same things, Lord, or even covering the same areas of, of sin and darkness or just the things that we keep hidden, Lord, in the recesses of our hearts. Lord, expose these things today, maybe that we're not even aware of. God, we need you. We need you. And it's our desire, of course, to glorify you in all that we do and all that we say and all that we live. We praise you, Lord, today. And we say amen. Before I say anything to you all today, I just want to say this, that there will be much that will be left unsaid in this 30 minutes of time. I just can't possibly cover everything that would need to be said or could even be said, but my desire and my aim today is that this morning's teaching energizes us. Really, it energizes us. Not just saying that, but genuinely just injects within us a sense of clarity, a sense of direction, and, and listen to me, please, a means, a means towards crossing what feels like an ever-increasing, almost insurmountable divide that exists within our nation today. It feels like that, and, and I just want to reflect here in a moment on some of the things that I've been feeling, and then use the Word of God to direct, we must use the Word of God to direct our thoughts and thus our footsteps. And so we avail ourselves in these moments of unrest, in these moments of tumult, we avail ourselves to Scripture because truth of Scripture is the guiding light by which we live by. You agree, right? Amen to that. It's the truth of Scripture which, which gives clarity, which guides us, which directs us, which stabilizes us. And we've been talking about this in the light of the pandemic that we've been experiencing. And I must say, right at this moment, even more so now, today. We give ourselves to the truth of Scripture. We remember that all that is needed for this life, that all that is needed for healing, all that is needed for wholeness is found within these pages right here. This is the answer to our sickness and man's problems and man's illnesses and divisions and strife, etc. This is the answer. And we strengthen our faith as we open the word of God, remembering and reminding ourselves that God is at the helm of the ship that is history. If after all, as my high school teacher would say to me, that history is his story. And that's what it is. God is at the helm of this ship of history. And that might sound kind of cheesy and corny because it is, but it's helpful, right? History is his story. 
It shows possession. It shows ownership. It shows a sense of intent and desire in God's heart towards the history of mankind. And we've said this so often, it isn't just a top that has been spun at one point in ages long ago at which God stands back now and watches it slowly, slowly unwind and teeter and tilt until it ends. No, God's interjecting. It's providence of God. God is, 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 is driving and guiding. That's the sovereignty of God. So we find ourselves in this place today, and, and we need to remind ourselves of that. And that probably isn't a bad thing to remind yourself of each and every day as you wake up. This is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord has made it. Which is why then the, the, the result of that statement is, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This isn't the day that I have made. This is the day that the Lord has made. And so today, this moment, these last two weeks, these are the days that the Lord has made. Wow, what a profound statement. Let's rejoice in it. How do we rejoice in it? I want to use this text today. As I said, well, this might be weird. I want to use this text today as a little bit of a, as a guidance as I said, just to help give us clarity and direction. Turn with me, please. We're going to be in the Old Testament again. We're looking at the book, the minor prophet of Micah. Micah. And I'm literally just going to give you one verse today. In the time that I have, I want to use it just as an encouragement. Micah. Did you find it? It's in 942 in Rick's Bible. Everyone gather around Rick. Look over his shoulder. Sixteen thirty-eight. Do I have a seven seventy-eight? Anybody? Seven seventy-eight. Seven seventy-six. Our Bibles must be more accurate. Seven seventy-eight. Seven seventy-six. Eight sixty-seven. Okay. Micah chapter six verse eight. We know this text well. Here we go. What does the Lord say? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Can we say amen to that? You guys, Man, it has been a remarkable and difficult couple of weeks as a nation. And I have to tell you, I just want to speak for a moment from the heart, and then I'm going to use this text to just bring some things out for us today. All of these ups and downs that this pandemic has been, just all the ups and downs, and as we're like, we're finding our, our way through that, right? I think some of us might have found our footing a little bit earlier and some maybe later. But within that, there's this like political jockeying, right, for partisan positions and it's like who who presents as though they're doing the best thing and the right thing and we're trying to navigate discernment with that and like do we do this and do we do that or or should we do this and should we do that right it's just been ah, all these things that we've been going through trying to decipher what we ought to do and and then I would say as things couldn't feel like they're more tenuous and couldn't feel like they're more shaky we have such an injustice that takes place that a man's life is taken from him at the hands of those who are sworn to protect and preserve that very same life. And then suddenly, the world seemingly becomes more shaky. And then as we say so often, and as we know, that which is shaken can be shaken, or that which can be shaken is shaken. And it feels like everything is shaking. 
This last week, I don't know about you guys, but the weight of this last week has been so tremendous upon me. I've had these moments of just up and down and up and down. And you listen, and we watch videos, and we, and we read the reports and the news, and the voices in the streets, and the voices within all the mediums of, of media and news. They're desperate to be heard. They're crying out, desperate to feel like there's a semblance of control, that somehow that they can control what we know that only God can control in and of himself. That is the hearts of men and women. But there's this cry for it. This desperation, the voices to be heard rightfully within injustice, but yet within those cries, it's how do we recapture a sense of control when really, again, we know that that cannot be controlled by mankind. It can be guided, sure. It can be helped, of course, but ultimately it cannot be controlled. And I want to say that it's in times like these that as Christians we must guard ourselves from tendency towards wrongful responses. We must guard ourselves from tendency towards wrongful responses. Let me just give you a few of them. And, and this, is, this is just to say, let me say this first. As I identify them, I want you to know within the last week, I found myself in each one of these moments. So there's no condemnation in it, but it's to recognize. And then I want to give to you what I believe is, is a right response in this time. How do we navigate the unrest that we have within culture? Some of us want to just tune it out completely, which may seem easier to do for some over, the, over others because of the proximity in which we are to these actual occurrences. You know, if you live in the suburbs right now, experientially life is different than it is for those who live closer to the downtown Sacramento. We're driving through neighborhoods in, in our part of town. Businesses are all boarded up completely. People are concerned about looting and riots. Downtown Sacramento, it was a remarkable. If any of you have been down there within the last couple of weeks, I mean, the, the National Guard with armored vehicles have been posted up, blocking off streets, blocking off alleyways. It's really, it's remarkable. But, but, see that, but for those of us who are outside of that, it's easy to just tune it out. Or it's easy to say, oh man, like I'm not comfortable with this, but I'm so thankful that I'm not as close to it maybe as some as are. And that sounds unkind, but if we're honest with ourselves, do we have that tendency at times? And maybe if, if, it, if it's even just for a moment. And others, I would say, if you're not tuning it out, maybe a, a tendency is towards the sense of anxiety over being overwhelmed and almost paralysis. What do I do with all of this? How do I process all of it? How do I filter all of it? How do I respond to all of it? It just seems like such a massive issue that I couldn't possibly have anything to say, that I couldn't possibly have anything of worth that would bring healing, that would bring restitution. I, I don't have anything to say. And so we feel overwhelmed, without direction, uncertain of what to do, how to do it, and whether it will even mean anything at all. And then others, there, there might be a reaction to jump headfirst into the cultural battle at the risk of neglecting, at the risk of neglecting wisdom and discernment. And I would say that's a tendency right now as well. As I've talked with friends, as, I, as I've talked with other church leaders, there's this, this sense of, of almost of obligation that we need to just jump straight in because in our non-response, we're saying something. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? 
And so there's this pressure, and, and I've felt the same thing. How do I respond right? How do I visibly respond? Do I need to, do I need to go stand in solidarity? Do I stand in protest? Do I protest for injustice? I'm not saying those things are wrong in and of themselves, but what I'm saying is, is we do those things to what end? We do them at the risk of missing, losing, or not engaging in wisdom and discernment. You might find yourself tending towards one of these or maybe even a combination. Like I said, I'm honest with you, I experienced all three of these. Wanting to tune out, feeling overwhelmed and, and anxious, and feeling like I just need to jump in and do something. I felt all within like probably four days this last week at various times. And I want to say this, and I think this is okay, you guys. It's okay to acknowledge the fact that some of this is just too much for us to carry. I told Shannon yesterday, I had this moment this week. There was a number of things, and I won't go into all of them, but just to say I got to Friday morning and I, was, I had a moment, a literal of like a panic attack for about 60 seconds. And it was on the heels of thinking of all of these things. And I sat down and I watched this video. And, and it was a terrible video. And I don't know why I watched it, but it was just a, something that was happening in one of these cities. And I just had this moment. And literally, I started having a tight chest and shortness of breath. And I just went, what is happening? And I stopped. And I just, okay, breathe. You're not dying. You know, quickly I was like, all right, this is what's happening. And I sat down and I started to pray and I said, God, there's a weight that I'm carrying right now. And I said to him, take from me the weight that I'm not supposed to carry. And that which I am intended to carry, give me the grace and the wisdom to carry it according to as you've called me to do. And each and every one of us, I think, can say and have that same prayer. What is the weight in this that we are to carry? But what are we not supposed to carry, you guys? And as I said last week, these, some of these battles, this bigger battle, in the sense, belongs to God because he's in control of all the affairs of mankind. And so we need to understand what is our rightful response in this. And so this is where I want to just give you this last. I want to suggest a fourth, a way today that I believe when applied rightly, it's more biblical and it keeping in mind both the necessity of immediate response, but as well as the long play in God. And I think sometimes we forego the long play because of the sense of the need for immediacy. Do you know what I'm saying by that? We just look at the now and we respond. That's more of that, 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 that sense of needing to jump into the culture battle. But we miss, like, what is God doing in the whole thing? What is God saying to the church in the whole thing? And I think that when we look here at Micah, chapter 6, Verse eight, there's three things from this text that when we see them together working in harmony, it presents this holistic and, and robust and effective Christian life, which gives us a solid ground, you guys, a solid ground when things are shaky for which we can move forward with, that we can take steps with. And the three, it's very simple. Within the time today, it's the three things I wanna give you. It's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And I just want to say those three things together, when, when working together, and we'll look at this. I'm just going to unpack it here. When we, when we see them working together, what they do is they present a Christian life that answers all of these things in a sense. It answers the question of how do I respond. It answers the question of how do I think. It answers the question of what do I say and how do I act and what direction do I go in.
So the first is do justice. Psalm 103, or 106, verse 3 says, Blessed are they who observe justice, comma, who do righteously all the time. Blessed are they who observe justice, who, deserve, who do righteously all the time. I would say that today justice is often thought of as fairness, equality, and equity of outcome, which if you look it up, it is defined by those things. Justice is defined by fairness. But I would say that that is the predominant thought. So when we talk about social justice works, social justice warriors, often what the end goal is is some sense of equity and equality within the circumstance. But what we actually come to find when we look at verses like Psalm, and what Psalm 106 is, is, is saying is this, is that justice is not only what is perceived to be as fair, but more importantly, can I say that? More importantly, it is what is right. And that's quite a differentiation between the two, between what is fair and between what is right. Oftentimes, the two are the same. Don't, don't, please don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that what is defined to us often as one thing, this is what it is, which then in turn interprets how we respond and what we say. Let me say to you as brothers and sisters, as Christians of the Lord Jesus Christ, justice has to be defined by this. It must not be defined by that out there. But let's begin here. And then this informs that. So justice, more importantly, is what is right. And again, 106 says, they who observe justice, comma, who do righteously. In other words, to observe justice is to do righteously. To observe justice is to do righteously. You guys hearing this? We know this text in Amos chapter 5, the, or at least we've, we hear songs, and actually I saw a sign held up this week with this scripture on it, let, although it was misquoted. I can say, let justice roll down like waters. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's interesting in that text, the context actually, is God speaking to Jerusalem, letting them know that they're about to be at the short end of the stick. But for the sake of what I'm saying today, the truth still remains that righteousness and justice go hand in hand with one another. Righteousness and justice go hand in hand. So to seek justice is to apply righteousness. To seek justice is to apply righteousness. Or to live justly or to do justly is to live and to do righteously. It's to fulfill mutual obligations in a manner that is consistent with God's moral law. It is to fulfill mutual obligations in a manner that is consistent with God's moral law. Because after all, what is righteousness but obedience and uprightness before God, right? That's what righteousness is. It's obedience and an up uprightness and holiness before God. And I think that in saying this, what happens that is that we are immediately faced with the limitations of our sinful nature. When we say that to do justice is to act righteously, suddenly our human nature comes into full view. Because why? Because we cannot always do what is just. And we do not always do what is right, as we know 
in the world today. Only Jesus ultimately can bring true and total justice. Only Jesus himself. And within God's plan, God reveals that his messianic servant, Jesus the Christ, is the only true hope for a truly just world. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, chapter 12. And if you're at home on the stream, this should come up for you today. I'm reading from the ESV, if you're wondering, Matthew chapter 12. Bless you. Bless you again. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. This, this idea that Jesus is the revelation of the only true hope within God's plan for the world itself. Beginning in verse 18. This is Jesus... Uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 42, but I'm reading it from Matthew because I like the way that it is spoken. Sorry, I'm looking for my place. I'm sorry, Jesus is not speaking here. This is a quotation of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant who I, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And I love what Isaiah 42 says right there. It says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Wow, what an interesting statement. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory in his name. The Gentiles will hope. This is the mission of Jesus Christ through God's plan. The revelation of justice to the nations, the revelation of hope to the nations, the the humble servant, the suffering servant, the quiet servant, not the the one who came, who required attention, whose voice could be heard, projected, but in action and in deed and intent and of course, ultimately in accomplishment through the cross. Jesus Christ is hope for justice for all the nations. Jesus is the standard for justice that the church must point to when the world cries out to see it manifest. Can I say that again? Did you hear that? Jesus is the standard of justice that the church must point to when the world cries out to see it made manifest. When cries for justice, as they are right now, are heard, the church must raise the banner of Jesus the Christ. He must be. He must be the standard. If he is in fact the source and the expression of true justice, then he must be the object of which we point others to. I was saying this recently to someone, again, as as we have all navigated our posture over these last couple of weeks, I don't want to miss what God is doing within it and I don't want to miss what God is saying and I, and I don't want to just respond because someone tells me I must respond this way. Just let, hear my heart in this statement for a minute, please. I was saying to a, a friend recently that one response is a doorway while the other response is the answer itself. One is, is an entrance or an access to the answer. The other is the answer. And let me just compare, if you will, for a moment. And again, 
Let me say, protesting is our civil right within the Constitution to do it peacefully. As is standing for injustice, it's right for us to do. So I am not saying that to protest or, or to stand in some form of solidarity as your conscience has called you to is wrong. But let me just say this. One is an answer and the other is the doorway to the answer. And where I believe that the church must be careful is to not stop in the doorway. Do not make your protesting the end all. That must just be the, ex at the access to Jesus the Christ. And so if the church remembers that, then it helps us to navigate. If Jesus is the standard, if Jesus is the one that we point to, then it helps us to navigate how do we point to him. Is, that, is this okay? Are you guys, are you hearing with me? Listen, if, 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 there, if there's something that you want to add to this or to just converse in, like let's do so afterwards, all right? This doesn't have to just be, well, here's Matt throwing out his opinion. I'm, I'm really, I've been... I've approached today with, with, with humility and asking the Lord just to, to speak to us through this. Let me move along for the sake of time. I want to say this. Jesus is the healing for divisions, church. Jesus is the healing for oppression. Jesus is the healing for abuse. Jesus is the great reconciler, not only of man to God, but of man to man. And I have been hanging on the scripture of Paul to the Ephesians church in chapter 2. Where, it's, where Paul is speaking that Jesus, he is himself our peace, who has made us both one. And I love the language that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we've talked about this text before in the context of racial division. I've taught on it before. But it is so clear, the intention of God within Jesus, that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by the flesh of Jesus Christ. And the purpose is this, as Paul says, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, again, thereby killing the hostility. That is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And I have found myself at that text this week over and over and over again, and that is where my heart is clinging to, because that is the hope of the gospel for the division and the unrest that we see today. That's the message of the church. It doesn't mean that we always walk it out perfectly. It doesn't mean, of course, that just because we speak it, that the world stops and goes, oh, we've been missing this all along. No, we must proclaim it, we must profess it, we must exemplify it in our words and our deeds and by that which we value. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as Christians defining justice in God's terms, as I have just done, we are called to live righteously with others, seeking righteousness in our cities, in our legislations, in our rulers, in our governing authorities, all while preaching the wholeness and the brightness that comes by the transformative power of Jesus and his gospel. So does this mean that we do so without consideration of story or context or of history? Of course not. It does not. We, we do so. We speak this and we profess this even more intently, seeking to identify using context, using history, using, using story. 
We use those things. We, we, we desire to hear those things because it's in hearing those things that the pain of the story is presented and then the gospel has an arrow and a mark and a target by which it can be aimed and shot at. You hear what I'm saying? So the gospel doesn't call people to forget their culture or to forget their race or to forget their story. The gospel takes it and he brings it into the light of the glorious grace of God and the tapestry that is the church and grace manifest in joining us together in heart and in purpose as one body, as one man. It's a beautiful story, church. Let it sink into your heart. Let it grip you and take hold of you. This is the hope of the story for the nations. The second is love kindness. So that's to do justice, and I'm going to try to do this quickly. Love kindness, I think, on the one hand, it's a very simple concept, yet I would say that it is vast in its pursuit and in its application. But I think that it takes a little bit less unearthing for us to get to the point. To love kindness is to place a high value on generosity. It's to place a high value on gentleness, on consideration, on helpfulness, on concern, on empathy, on compassion, and steadfastness of love, and so many more things. It's to pursue peacefulness. To love kindness is to pursue mercy. It's to pursue patience. Kindness is not just one small act. It's a whole way of life. It's a whole embodiment of action and being and thinking and valuing. And to love kindness is to give all of those traits that I just said and more preference and priority in our thinking and in our actions. We pursue it in our thinking, we pursue it in our values, and we pursue it in our ways. That is what it means to love kindness, is to give it preference, is to give it a place of value in a place where we actually pursue it. It's the course, it's to live outwardly for others rather than inwardly for ourselves. This is a battle, you guys, that we all face each and every day. Will I live today for myself or will I live today for those whom God has called me to? Very simply, to love kindness is to begin your day in such a way. Who has God called me to? How am I going to pursue patience, empathy, concern, care, etc., etc.? It's most clearly, of course, as always, it's most clearly seen in Jesus the Christ. Like so many other spiritual traits, we see the standard for kindness shown to us in the great gift of salvation by Jesus Christ. And this is what Titus 2.4 says, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When the goodness and the loving kindness, the salvation of God towards mankind is the loving kindness. It's God pursuing loving kindness on behalf of humanity. And what is that? What does that look like in Jesus towards mankind? It was sacrificial. It was preferential. It was effective. It was abounding. It was steadfast. You hear what I'm saying? This is the point that we have to look to Jesus as the embodiment of love and kindness towards us and let what we find as revealed in Jesus guide 
how we respond in light. Do justice, love kindness, and finally, walk humbly with our God. And I love this last one. To walk in humility is to live with a low view of one's own importance. It's not a low view of your significance. It's not the same thing. Significance and importance are two different things. Because we're all of great value and worth, are we not? We are. We are all of great value. We are all significant. But rather, it's a call to live meekly, not puffed up with pride and not puffed up with self-importance. For the Christ follower, walking in humility begins with an acknowledgement of our sinful state and our ongoing need for grace. That's where it begins. And again, we see that, we receive that orientation by what we know and understand of Jesus at the cross, of what he has done for us. Raise your hand if you could have saved yourself. There we go. You were in need of a savior. Raise your hand if you can complete that which God began through the cross. We're in need of grace ongoing to complete it. Living in humility begins with a sinful, with an acknowledgement of our sinful state. Listen though, it's not self-flagellation of like, I'm so low, I'm so worthless, I'm so this, I'm such a sinner, I'm so bad. You guys know what I'm talking about, the old monastics that it's like, remember the beginning of Monty Python? And they're hitting their faces with the boards. You know, that's not, that's not what this is. That's not what it means to be humble. That's a false sense of humility. That's not what it means to be humble. But it's living in the ongoing recollection and remembrance of what God accomplished through Jesus Christ and all that encompasses. We were unworthy, yet he called us worthy. We were sinners, yet he called us his love. And on and on and on. Remember those things, you guys. That is what it is. That's the beginning of the Christian heart and the benefit of the Christian life to walk in humility. We don't boast in our attainments, nor do we glory in our accomplishments. Look at 2 Corinthians. It's just good to keep us flipping to Scripture. I could read them for you, but you know, you get the benefit of listening to me read it and reading it for yourself. 2 Corinthians, turn with me to chapter 4, please. This too should be for those who are at home. I believe that we have this text for you. 2 Corinthians 4. We don't boast, you guys. Humility is not boasting in our attainments. Beginning here in verse chapter 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Well, there's a good starting point for you in case you thought that you were a jar of porcelain or that old fine china from the, the Ming dynasty. No, you are a ratty, tattered, broken jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to, the, to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. This is the position of the Christian life. 
that we always carry within us the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, the cross is always putting to death the sinful man. We're putting to death by the means of grace the fleshly desires, the fleshly impulses, the fleshly thoughts and actions that we have. We carry around within this mortal body, within this jar of clay, by the power of the Spirit of God, both the death of Christ, but also the life of Christ as well. What a remarkable truth it is of the Christian life. And if you're not familiar with this, or if this is just kind of giving you tilt, or maybe I'm speaking too fast, this is new creation. This is what Paul means by when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That new creation carries with it both the death and the life of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, this is an awesome quote. Charles Spurgeon, the great and the late Charles Spurgeon, says this, the best of men are but men at best, and the brightest of saints are still sinners. That is what humility looks like. There's two words in this command of to walk humbly with our God that I just want to point in the time that I have left. They are the words with and our, and they help us to understand the how of this we are to walk. The word with and the word the word our. In, in the inference of with, it's that humility requires constant and ongoing communion with God. Just like Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians where we read, where he says that we always carry around with us in our bodies the death of Jesus Christ. Not just once, not when we first began, but we always. That's what with is implying. To walk humbly with means, in its implication is that we are in close communion with God himself. Continually in an ongoing manner with no end to it. With implies union, it implies connection, and it implies proximity to something or to someone. You following me here? And the hour in this statement means it implies intimacy, knowing, possession, and familiarity. So to say to walk humbly with our God is to say that we walk in humility, as I've already described, but yet in close Proximity and connection and in union with God who is our God. And it echoes the Shema that God gave to Israel. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord, is one. Echoing again, this possessiveness is that I am your God and you are my people. Our Christian walk, you guys, It necessitates not only a close connection, but an intimate knowledge of the one whom we follow. And I was thinking, if you want to study something, if you want to learn math, like most of us here, except for maybe a few of you whizzes, really want to know math to where you could apply math on the everyday life, how do you go about learning something like that? We don't come to just a knowledge of its intricacies and its values and its methods and its formulas by simply lying next to the textbook on our bed at night, hoping the osmosis that it seeps into our brain. Trust me, I probably tried that a few times in high school myself. I did Algebra 2 twice in high school. That's how non-mathematic I am. But we don't learn by just laying next to it at night. 
and hoping that it assimilates into us. No, what do we do? We open the text, we bury our nose into the pages, we study the formulas, we learn how they relate to each other, and in doing so, we begin to apprehend the knowledge for ourselves. And, and in that apprehension, then it begins to inform, because what is it that we always say? For those of us who are non-mathers, it's like, well, I'm not gonna need to use math anyway. Why do I need to learn algebra? And I'll never use algebra. I actually still think I don't ever use algebra. That's the truth. But you, you, you have to take it. Yeah, I probably don't. You're right. I probably don't know that I do. But the point is, is that it's that it's in the knowing, in the intimacy of the knowledge and the understanding and the apprehension of it, that it assimilates into our thinking. And then we begin to probably just use it, not knowing that we actually know how to use it. That's the same kind of analogy that I'm saying here in terms of this walking humbly with God. It's that we're so close to God, that we're in so close connection and communion, and that we're so intentional on knowing God and and being known by God and understanding his ways and the way he thinks and what truth is revealed to us within scripture that we begin to apprehend it and we assimilate it. And the next thing you know, we're just living this truth out. And it sounds really easy in some ways, but we all know that's much more difficult than it sounds. But what does it require? It requires continual and ongoing, continual and, on, in, and ongoing communion with God himself. Concerning this humility, Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, be clothed with humility as if after we had put on the whole armor of God. Just let me paint this picture. After we have put on the whole armor of God, we put this cover over all to cover it all up. We don't want the helmet to glitter in the sun, nor the greaves of the brass upon the knees to shine before men, but clothing ourselves like officers in mufti, which is like this kind of a plain clothes officer, essentially is the picture there. We conceal the beauties which will eventually be the more revealed themselves. This picture that humility is strength. Humility isn't weakness, right? Humility is strength, and it's an ability that we are clothed in by the power of the Spirit of God. See, this is the, this, you guys, put these things together to do what is right. To, to do justice is to do right. To seek and to love kindness in all the ways of which I spoke, and to walk in humility and in the strength of the power of God. To walk our days in a closeness, in close communion. I mean, we're covering everything in these three statements. This is what I mean when we put them together. We've got this picture of the Christian life as God has intended it. This is what our nation needs. This is what our city needs, you guys. Strength without forcefulness. It needs love without self-recognition. It needs empathy without judgment. And most of all, most of all, it needs the truth of Jesus without compromise. Some of you today might still be responding or determining how you want to respond in solidarity of injustice, but I would say this for the sake of our nation, you guys, please do not neglect living in solidarity with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of the injustices that we see. Do not miss the answer by standing just in the doorway. Let's rise above the politicizing which causes indifference. Let's, let's, let's rise above that which might even worse cause disdain in our hearts. And let's engage with the righteous voice that we have been given as a people of God. Can we agree to that today?
May the Lord Jesus Christ give us the grace in this. As I said, there's a lot that can still be said in this. But just as a sense of, man, let's find our anchoring today. And, and we in this room are in all different spaces and spectrums in this current cultural story. But the wonder and the joy and the hope that we have is that it speaks to each one of our stories today. And not only does it give us a place of meaning and context, but it also gives us a place of direction and clarity of what we ought to do. Brothers and sisters, we must do what is right and just. We must love kindness and we must walk humbly with our God. Amen? Amen. Please stand. Thank you, Matt. As I said when we started the meeting, I felt like the Lord spoke to me this morning and said, this is where you will gain your bearing. This is where you will hear what you need to hear in this hour and hear it together and hear it with one heart and one mind and leave this place together having heard from God together. And I do know that we have done that today through the word that that Matt brought. Can I say this lovingly to us? I speak to myself. I've been doing a ton of reading the last few weeks, um, and uh, especially one in particular focus. I really believe that what is happening in our nation in some ways, is the responsibility of the the church's failures. I think the church has abdicated its responsibility in our nation. Um, And I'm going to talk about that, actually. I'm going to teach next Sunday. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, And so we bear the responsibility. We bear the responsibility for our nation as a people to pray for it and to live out what Matt preached It's desperately needed. Father, we lift our voices today. We thank you for the word of God, and we thank you for this time together. We pray for the grace of God to strengthen us, Lord, deepen our inner man. We pray for the word of God to speak to our hearts and minds. We pray for wisdom, O God, to live a life that is pleasing to you, that is glorifying of you, and that is a witness and a testimony in these days. Teach us to pray that we might be effective as men and women seeking, O God, the well-being of this city. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen.